right, well, good to be back with you today. If you got a Bible, go ahead and grab it and uh, get to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians 6 is uh, where we're going to be today. And as you are finding that and getting settled in, let me just uh, celebrate with you what took place over this last week. Uh, you all gave uh, over $128,000 in gift cards to our teachers to help them clear their lists. And... Uh, uh, 2,572 teachers received gift cards. 639 school systems were represented across seven different states that we know of. So that was incredible. So thank you guys for your generosity. Uh, teachers, we love you. We know that doesn't resolve everything, but hopefully it's a, it's a small encouragement uh, to you as you uh, kick off your school year. Well, uh, today I got to get going because I got way too much content and not enough time. And if you've been in our church for any length of time at all, you're like, what else is new? Um, but uh, uh, let me just kind of start this way. Um, I heard about this uh, kind of strange phenomenon that has happened recently in Australia with these um, male jewel beetles. Now, apparently these male beetles, every year they take flight looking for female beetles to mate with, as they've done for thousands of years to perpetuate their existence. But in recent years, uh, due to more and more litter, where people are throwing empty beer bottles into the Australian landscape, these male beetles are getting confused and they think that these empty beer bottles are female beetles. And so they are mating with the empty beer bottles because apparently these beetles like big bottles and they cannot lie. So it's, uh, um, the eight o'clock went right over their head, right? So now, you know, we can laugh at that, you know, uh, you know, there was a beer company in California that even made an IPA beer kind of, you know, uh, making fun of these beetles getting busy with bottles. But scientists and researchers have actually kind of sounded the alarms and said, hey, this is no laughing matter. If they keep this up, then they could go extinct. So they're being lured away from the real thing with an empty, shiny bottle, and the results are potentially devastating. Now, we can kind of laugh at an example like that, um, but something very similar is and has been taking place in our culture uh, as human beings where we have been, here, here's what Romans 1 says, we're exchanging the truth of God for a lie. And so there are a number of empty bottles, so to speak, that have been tossed into the cultural landscape that many times we are opting over that instead of for God's design and intent for human sexuality. And the results, I don't think it's too drastic of a word to say that the results are devastating. Now, if you're just now joining us, whether in person or online, we are in week three of a six-week series called Deconstruct, Reconstruct. And what we're doing, deconstruction, if that is a term that you're not familiar with, this is uh, something that has been happening more and more in recent years where uh, somebody who maybe at one time considered themselves a Christian or a person of faith, they enter into a quest to um, dismantle, reshape, or maybe even abandon the faith altogether. So oftentimes what happens is, is that we have a difficult time maybe reconciling the religion of our upbringing. And I use the word religion intentionally because religion is not the same thing as authentic, real Christianity. But we have a tendency to kind of confuse and we're like, I'm trying to reconcile the religion of my upbringing with what I'm facing in real life. And so the option for demolition of the faith looks a lot better than simply renovation of the faith. So what we're doing in this year, that, that deconstruction is the backdrop. What we're doing is we're just kind of bringing up a handful of topics or, or issues, not an exhaustive list by any means, 
But just a handful of the, the top ones that I hear and, and see as a pastor that are often at the root of somebody deconstructing and walking away from their faith. Now, uh, I'm not going to uh, claim to have all the answers because I don't. And I'm not going to uh, pretend like I've never struggled or at times continue to struggle because I do. Um, and I will never ever say to those of you that are maybe questioning or doubting or deconstructing, hey, you just need to believe because. You know, that's not a good enough reason. And Jesus never did that and neither will we. So I want you to know that the church that you're in right now is that this is the tone that we want to have, not only for this series that we're in, but just in general throughout the year, is that we want to be a Jude 122 church. So Jude 122 simply says this, we want to be merciful to those who doubt. Now, oftentimes in religion, we can be a lot of things to people other than merciful to those who doubt. So we can be, you know, uh, dismissive uh, or um, judgmental or condescending to those who doubt. But we want to be merciful to those who doubt and to know that this is a safe place for you to be real and vulnerable and authentic and ask your questions and heal from maybe some of the wounds that you may have, that may have occurred in your past. Now, I want you to know this, that um, uh, the next four weeks in particular, as we, as the, the duration of this series is uh, what I would just call like really heavy lifting. There is not a topic in the duration of this series that is easy. Uh, the rest of it is all complicated. And if you've ever had to move, uh, pick up heavy furniture and move it around, rule of thumb, don't try to lift it yourself, recruit help. And so I just want you to know that I've been thinking about praying over this series for the better part of a year, not entering into it lightly. Uh, I've been trying to uh, read everything I could get my hands on for the last three months on all of what we're going to cover. And I just want to acknowledge uh, some of the top sources that have impacted and influenced me the most. So three pastors and two authors in particular, uh, pastors uh, John Tyson, Eric Geiger, and Josh Howerton, who have led lead great churches in the United States. They're all personal friends of mine. I've had conversations with them about the, these subjects and they've shared a lot of their content with me that has really, really helped me shape what I'm presenting to you. Two authors, Preston Sprinkle, who's been here before to our church to kind of lead kind of a seminar on some of this. And then an author by the name of Nancy Piercy, who uh, she, her book, Love Thy Body, is the best book that I've read in the last three years. And I cannot recommend um, her book highly to you. Um, enough. So uh, here's where we want to go with this. One of the most common reasons that I've observed that get the gears of deconstruction moving in somebody's life has to do with sex. Now, more specifically, uh, here's how I'd phrase it. Uh, trying to reconcile what God's word declares about sex with our desire as human beings for sex. And so sometimes the question gets framed this way. Well, why does God really you know, care who I sleep with anyway? It's just sex. It's just another biological desire. So the logic kind of goes like this. You know, it's just another appetite that we have. And so, you know, when I'm sleepy or when I'm you know, tired, I sleep. And when I'm hungry, I eat. And when I'm thirsty, I drink. So when I get aroused, I have sex. What's the big deal? And the secular script will say, you know, you're just having fun. You're just exploring. You know, you're just satisfying a very natural desire. You shouldn't feel ashamed for pursuing very natural desires. Now, um, what I want to do is I just want to uh, be very, very clear that there are two scripts that you can read off of and apply to your life when it comes to human sexuality. 
You can uh, read off of the script of what God's word says about it, or you can read off of, and here's how I'm gonna refer to it for the rest of our time today. The secular script, what the secular script says about human sexuality. Now, this is what the church in Corinth was wrestling with. So when Paul writes this letter to them, here's what I need you to understand about the church in Corinth, is that uh, these were Christians who did not grow up in church. They came to know Christ later because the, the New Testament church was a relatively new thing. And so at that time in their life, they were coming out of a lot of sinful and sexual baggage that they had sort of brought into the church. And so they were saved by grace through faith. And I, I cannot stress that enough, that we don't bring anything to the table. We are not saved by our own merits or works. We're saved by the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. The word for this is justification. Don't get this confused with sanctification. Just that, here's how I was taught it when I was growing up. Just as if I had never sinned, even though I have, but I'm saved by Jesus' righteousness. Then from that point forward, we enter into, from that position of salvation, then we enter into what we might call sanctification. And that is just a fancy word for, I'm gonna spend the rest of my life bringing every other area of my life into alignment with the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So my relationships, my marriage, my thought life, my career, my finances, and my sex life. I'm gonna bring this into alignment and it is a process. And some will say, well, how long does that take? For the rest of your life, right? That, that's all, right, that's all. So, so we're bringing all these things into alignment. So the, the, the church in Corinth, like they just were dealing with some really broken, sinful patterns of behavior. It always cracks me up when people come up to me and they're like, you know, pastor, why can't we just get back to being a New Testament church? And I'm like, which one? Because they're all jacked up, right? They're, they're all messed up. So, and we are too. So, so we've got these Corinthians and they were saved by grace through faith. But um, you got a dude in the church who was sleeping with his stepmom and nobody was saying anything about it. And then you got people that during the week, they were sleeping with temple prostitutes and just kind of looking the other way. They were kind of sweeping it under the rug. So this is what prompts Paul to write these very hard to hear words, but from a place of compassion, mercy, and love. And so he says this in verse 13. You say, so the Corinthians had obviously pushed back on him through their letters to him. You say, food was made for the stomach and the stomach for food. And this is true, though someday God will do away with both of them. But you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality, or here's another way of saying it, that your bodies were just made for sex. It's not like it's just another biological desire. This next sentence is so crucial. They were made for who? They were made for the Lord. And the Lord cares about our bodies. So let me just answer the question that this message is presenting. Why does God care who I sleep with? Because he cares about your body, not just your soul. And oftentimes we separate the two. In verse 14, it says, and God will raise us from the dead by his power, just as he raised our Lord from the dead. Verse 15, don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her. For the scriptures say the two are united into one. But the person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. 
Hold on to that statement. I'm going to come back to that in a few moments to explain why that is. Verse 19. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price, the life of his son. So you must honor God with your body. Now I want to point out, that Paul is not writing to the culture of Corinth. He's writing to the church at Corinth. He makes that distinction. And that's so important for us to make that distinction as well. So I want to be really, really clear. Uh, there are, let, me, let me just speak to all the non-Christians in the room or listening online that are listening to this. I want to speak to you that you can audit everything else you're going to hear me say in the next few minutes. If you've ever audited a college class, you're like, hey, I'm just getting the information, but I'm not gonna be graded by this. That's what I'm inviting you to because uh, uh, maybe you have been um, uh, tried to moralize into the faith and that never works. I'm not gonna try to moralize you into the faith. I would never expect you to follow a sexual ethic that you never signed up for because you're not following after Jesus. So here's, so here's, so you're like, well, what do you want from me? Well, number one, I just want you to consider the wisdom that you're going to hear from the scriptures, because I really do believe that this wisdom here will make your life better if you apply it. But here's primarily what I want, is I would just love for you to just consider giving your life to Jesus today. That's the primary message that I want you to hear, all right? So now let me address all the Christians listening, and, and, and the Christians won't be clapping here in just a minute, all right? So... <laughs> No. So uh, get that out of your system now. All right, so uh, I want to address all the Christians because Paul's addressing Christians. And here's what I want to say is I just want you to recognize that even though you might consider yourself, you know, a committed Christ-following Christian, we are, me included, I'm including myself in this, products of the culture in which we live, whether we realize it or not. And all of us have been influenced by the secular script. It, it would be impossible not to because we're constantly exposed to it through entertainment and um, relationships and the culture that we're around. And so many of us are living disintegrated lives, just like the Corinthians. So there, there, are, there is, and, and since sanctification is a lifelong process, there's something in every single one of our lives that we need to be aware of, be convicted by, and bring into alignment with the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And so I want to speak to you and, and ask you to just in this posture, right? It's very easy, like in a sermon like this, to go, I know who needs to listen to this message. And I'm going to be forwarding the link, you know, to my neighbor after this because, you know, they're doing some things, you know. It's like, you can do that. It's all fine and good. You can do that. Let God do business with you first. So, so that's, that's where, where we want to kind of go. Uh, with this. Now, Christianity, I think oftentimes, and sometimes for good reason, gets stereotyped as being uh, prudish and old-fashioned when it comes to sex. And so the secular script says, that's wrong. Like, to suppress these very natural desires is harmful, and it's unrealistic. And I would say that there is a difference between what religion says about sex and what real, authentic Christianity says about sex. And Christianity has a much higher view of sex than both the religious and the secular scripts. So we can't just say as Christians, you know, sex, it's wrong. It's shameful. It's gross. Therefore, you should be ashamed of yourself. That does not work. And it is never what God intended. Sexual desires are way too strong. And the temptations are way too relentless to just expect people to resolve these urges with cold showers, the two feet rule, and chastity belts. 
What we need is a much more compelling narrative that makes sense to us. And so um, here's what I want to suggest. I'm going to actually invite you to deconstruct. Not real Christianity, but the secular script that many of us have been influenced by in our lives. When was the last time you did that? When was the last time you just diagnosed this, what the secular script says about sexuality, got behind it and did a little deconstruction of it? And I think if you do, what you'll find is that it isn't promising fulfillment either. And many secularists, and I'm going to be quoting many of them in the following moments, um, they're beginning to see this. They, they, they do not have a Christian worldview, but they're beginning to actually puncture holes in this um, approach or this view of human sexuality. Jonathan Grant wrote a really insightful book entitled Divine Sex. And in it, he encourages us uh, with this great question. What are, not just what are we doing when we have sex, like mechanics, who are we becoming through sex? This is the question of discipleship. Who am I becoming by what I'm doing? And as it turns out, there are a lot of, bottles, so to speak, that are being tossed into the cultural landscape that are luring us away from God's intent and design for human sexuality. I just want to point out three. I could probably give uh, a dozen or more, but let me just point out three in the remainder of our time here. The first bottle that I just point out would be what I would call hookup culture. Hookup culture. We're all influenced by it, whether you realize it or not. Hookup culture, what it does is it glamorizes impersonal sex but gives us no clue how to start a real relationship. Like when was the last time in a movie that they made anybody who was like in a committed monogamous relationship, they, they made them out to be, you know, the, the person to be admired. Like throughout entertainment, it's always like kind of hookup culture. They kind of treat it casually and it's, it's having devastating results specifically upon like the, the upcoming generations. There's a professor or a, a yeah, professor at Boston College named Carrie Cronin. And, and uh, she ta actually talks about some of the seniors in her senior seminar class at Boston College and how she is really kind of taken aback by the fact that most of them have never been on a real date and they don't even really know how to. And so um, she started like a dating 101 seminar that, and all of them were flocking to it um, because they, they don't really know how to interact with like a real person because oftentimes they're communicating digitally via apps. And in August of this last year, the New York Times published this article entitled The Decade of Fruitless Searching, The Toll of Dating App Burnout. And part of what, the, uh, what prompted the article is that the dating app Tinder, uh, which is primarily known as a hookup app, just turned 10 years old. And so they're actually kind of breaking it down saying, okay, what are, what are, like, are we any better as a society because of this? And the research is showing that people are burned out and frustrated because their mental health has deteriorated by use of some of these dating apps. I'm not saying that all dating apps are bad, but through some dating apps because of the, just all the constant swiping. It's like we've turned people into a meat market or the Amazon Prime of relationships. And the promise of hookup culture says this, be fulfilled by way of reducing sexual relations to hygienic recreation in which anything goes as long as those involved are consenting adults. And this just is not delivering. Even uh, the great theologian Miley Cyrus has kind of weighed in on this. And she said, she said this, and I quote, uh, sex is easy. You can find somebody to have sex with in five seconds. What we want is somebody that we can talk to and be ourselves with. 
And that's fairly slim pickings. See, hookup culture, what it does is it draws clear lines between two things. Um, The personal you, which is mental and emotional side of you, and the physical you, which would be physical intimacy and sexual relationships. Now this like image right here is really important both for today and for next week in the subjects that we are talking about it. So I want you to get real familiar with it that this is the social script that all of us are inundated in and you are probably influenced by it whether you realize it or not, even if you're a committed Christian. This is called dualism. And it finds its kind of origins in like Cartesian dualism, which was famously defended by Rene Descartes. And it's this dualistic mentality that simply says this, disassociate your physical body from who you really are on the inside. So your body is just, and I'm quoting here, a wet machine. It's not really you, it's just a shell. Like it's a juicy robot and you just simply control it. So what you do with your body doesn't really affect your mind and your soul and your heart. Now, Christianity is oftentimes cast as being really negative on sex. But as it turns out, real Christianity has a much higher view of sex. And in the book, Pulling Back the Shades, it says this. The truth is that you are created for something more. And deep down, we all know it. Your sexuality was never meant to be separate from your deepest spiritual and relational longings, but to be an expression of them. So Miriam Grossman is a psychiatrist at UCLA, and she has expressed her frustration in the moral limitations that the university has placed on her as she's counseling students. Like she can only say so much. And she's put all of this in a book called Unprotected. And in it, she talks about this freshman girl named Olivia and Olivia comes to see her and Olivia is despondent and depressed because she's just had her first sexual encounter followed by an immediate breakup. And Olivia is talking to the psychiatrist and this is what Olivia expresses to her. She says, why are we given all of this information by the society on how to protect our bodies from STDs and avoiding unwanted pregnancy, but not a word of caution on what casual sex does to your heart. And this is what Paul is trying to convey in our passage. But we oftentimes chalk it up to being old fashioned. In verse 18, he says, our bodies aren't just made for sex, but they're made for God and God cares. Why? Because he doesn't want you to enjoy yourself sexually. No, because he knows it is a powerful gift and he doesn't want you to be hurt by it. He wants you to be fulfilled by it. But we oftentimes keep chasing the empty bottles. Let me point out another bottle that's been tossed into the cultural landscape. This one has been existing for about the last 50 or 60 years or so called the sexual revolution. Sexual revolution was, uh, that, that word was uh, kind of coined by a psychologist by the name of Wilhelm Reich, who contended uh, simply this, that we should just immerse ourselves in our sexual instincts, saying that the core of human happiness is sexual fulfillment in all of its forms. So uh, the sexual revolution invited all of us to throw off the shackles of repressive religion and morality and embrace all of our impulses and desires as a way of personal freedom and fulfillment. And now after 50, 60 years or so of this social experiment, many are beginning to question it. Many of those on the secular side of the script are beginning to see that this is actually not delivering what it is promised. Uh, Christine Emba, who is not a believer, writes in the Washington Post, which is not a Christian publication. She wrote this article last year, Consent is Not Enough, We Need a New Sexual Ethic. And in it, she contends that this generation is the most sexually liberated, but ironically, least sexually satisfied. 
And she says, in this landscape, there's only one rule. Get consent from your partner beforehand, but the outcome is a world where young people are both liberated and miserable. So in this culture, you'll recognize this, consent is oftentimes listed as the highest value. Now, consent is important, but it's not everything. Like, uh, you know, um, we've all, like, just because you consent to something doesn't make it right. And, just, and we've all consented to something that later we regretted. And so right now, we're like, uh, she's saying that we're, 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 we're miserable. Well, 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 how and why? Well, I think the science and the social psychology is beginning to catch up to the wisdom that is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul says that sexual sin is a sin against your body. One sex therapist puts it this way. When we have intercourse, we create an, here's the term, involuntary chemical commitment to this other person. Society will say, well, you're just having fun. Society will say, well, you're just trying to figure out if you're compatible. No, actually, the science says you're creating an involuntary chemical commitment, meaning you haven't made an emotional commitment just yet. You haven't made like a promise for life just yet, but you've made a chemical commitment to this other person. Cameron Diaz puts it this way in the movie Vanilla Sky to Tom Cruise's character. She says, when you sleep with someone, your body makes a promise, even if you don't. And this is what Paul's driving at when he says sexual sin is a sin against your body. And science is catching up to this wisdom. In fact, uh, the research on hormones, like so oxytocin and vasopressin, which are the two chemicals released by our body during sex, and it brings the attachment system online and causes us to bond with another person. Now the science is saying that the, so here's what the sexual script said in the sexual revolution. Have as many partners as you can, so that way you can figure out what you want and need. The science now says the more sexual partners you have, the less capacity your physical body has for intimacy. So as it turns out, God wasn't being old-fashioned after all. He's not trying to hinder your sex life. He's trying to help you have the best sex ever. And studies actually show right now, did you know like, like Hollywood kind of looks at, you know, Christians as being kind of prudish and you're sexually confined. But the studies say the opposite. Do you know the most sexually satisfied couples are committed Christians who follow after Jesus, are stay committed to each other and attend church regularly. That's what the studies show. So do you know what that means? It means you want to have the best sex of your life, give your life to Jesus, get married, stay committed to that person and go to church. That's, that's what that means. But we keep exchanging the bottle for the real thing. Let me give you one last one. Uh, the bottle of, of porn. This has been uh, thrown out into our cultural landscape. This is the most extreme example of depersonalized sex. And what happens is, is that the viewer, whether it is a male or female, because both sexes struggle with this, uh, but statistically it's more males, they disconnect the body dualism from the individual as a person, devouring the image as an object for personal pleasure. It's the ultimate act of selfishness. Now, due to its accessibility, it's where many young people are receiving their sex education, tragically. So mom and dad aren't having the intentional conversations with them. They're getting exposed to porn at a really early age. And we are immersed in sexual imagery, making sexual intimacy increasingly difficult to achieve. And those reading off of the secular script are beginning to notice this. In fact, one Washington Post article recently declared porn as a public health crisis, saying that the science is now beyond dispute. 
Studies reveal porn actually shrinks the brain, reduces uh, neural activity. It's addictive. It often leads to violence, destroys relationships, and feeds sex trafficking and prostitution. Yet many people shrug it off as, you know, no big deal. Uh, One Barna survey uh, rated it, people that that took the survey, they rated porn as morally less objectionable than overeating or not recycling. Today, the average age of exposure is nine years old. So by the time they enter into adulthood, they've been consuming porn for more than a decade. And how has this affected relationships with real women? Time Magazine says this, many of them are simply unable to experience a sexual response with a real life woman. In many instances, they are only able to respond to porn. And in fact, they prefer it. Some see the next step as sex robots. They say in 10 years, sex robots will replace porn. In fact, the first sex robot brothel has just opened up in Barcelona, Spain. Sexual sin is fundamentally different than all of their sin struggles that we will wrestle with in this sense. Everywhere in scripture, when it says, when you're tempted with something, it says that we can resist it. We, we can resist, I'm speaking to Christians, we can resist it. How? Because the Holy Spirit is within you. So what that means is like if Satan shows up physically on your front porch and he's tempting you with something, uh, God's word says you can step outside your door, go toe to toe with him and um, resist him, fight him UFC style. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. However, when it comes to sexual sin, God's word doesn't say resist. God's word says run. Like if George Clooney or like, that was the only example I could come up with. All right, so it's like ladies fill in the blank. I don't know. But uh, you know, if like, you know, there's some seductive woman that's like, you know, hanging out on the hood of your car after church. Like it doesn't say like, you know, which that could happen. That could happen. Like it doesn't say you go toe to toe with that and like fight it. It says run. Like that's what Joseph did. Like when Potiphar's wife like tempted it, he didn't like, well, like, let's just talk about this for a minute. No, like he, he ran. And every time that I interact, interact with somebody or even just in, in my own life, anytime you struggle and fall in sexual sin, it is because you decided to flirt and not flee. You run because you're no match. Now, um, there's a whole bunch of other bottles that I could throw out. Like we could talk about sex as savior. The, the top two religions in our uh, world today are sex and politics. That's why people get so animated when we bring those up. It's like sex is sort of a substitute religion. We could talk about sex as identity. This idea that's been infused in the secular script that your identity is fused with who you are attracted to. We could talk about um, living together, premarital sex, which guys is honestly a huge issue in the church today. And many, and many Christians, committed Christians are living together under the guise of, well, you know, we just need to save for the future or, you know, uh, we don't have anywhere to go or, you know, we need to figure out if we're compatible, guys. Trust me, you're compatible. You have parts, they fit together, right? That's, that's what that works like. And so we've got, I could, we can talk about all these other bottles. And in fact, I don't have the time to unpack them. I wish I did, but I have before. So there's a message series I preached last year called Significant Other. I spent two weeks on sexual formations, parts one and two. I think I preached 45, 50 minutes on both those subjects. We cover a gamut of all those things. And then um, when it comes to same-sex attraction, in 2019, I preached specifically to that. You can go back and, catch up on those uh, messages. But I, I got to land the plane here in the next few minutes. So here's where I want to land the plane. I, I just want you to know um, that the church hasn't always given us the best narrative. 
when it comes to, to sex and human sexuality and how to think about it and how to express it and how to enjoy it. And, uh, and so because of that, because we didn't have a compelling of enough narrative, many of us deconstructed and maybe walked away or just kind of waved the white flag and, and, and maybe you're, you're just, you're, you're straddling the scripts. So when it comes to like the script of God's word, like you've got other areas of your life that you brought into alignment with Jesus, but this other area you haven't. And maybe it's just because you've lost so many battles or because you're ashamed and because you've been in hiding. Um, some of you are like me, like you grew up in 1990s church and 1990s youth groups, it, it was the purity culture. And I don't wanna be too hard on purity culture because a lot of good things came out of that. But purity culture got it wrong in the sense that it didn't give us a compelling of enough narrative to abide our lives by. So here's what I mean. The purity culture relied on this message. Sex is either uh, gross or it is something you should be ashamed of. And so what happened is, is like, um, because of the shame factor, many of us that struggled with sexual sin, we didn't feel like it was safe to actually be vulnerable about that or to confess it. And so we hid it and it just gained greater power over us. Sex is gross. Many of you were taught a sex, gross, 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 get married, go on your honeymoon. Great, 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 great. And you couldn't make the switch because your neurological brain activity had been hardwired one way. And what it did was it, it damaged intimacy in your marriage. So here's what I wanna acknowledge. The cultural script is failing us. Sometimes the church has failed us. True Christianity views sex as a rich expression of a whole person, body, mind, and spirit. Can I urge you today, don't deconstruct, reconstruct. Now. Let me just tell you what kind of a church you are sitting in right now. You're sitting in the kind of church that will unapologetically and boldly teach the truth of God's word, but do so humbly in the sense of we're all in this together. And this is what God's word says. Now, and it's not just to believe it because God's word says, it actually makes sense like socially and scientifically. And I know that a number of you, especially maybe you're not a Christian or maybe you're, you're kind of compartmentalize your life. You listen to all this and you just go, thanks, but no thanks. And that's okay. You, you can do with it whatever you want to do. Here's what I just want you to know as a pastor. Like, here's, here's my heart for you. I love you way too much to just simply tell you what you want to hear. Sometimes I, I just need to say something that's running against the grain of the way that you're living your life. Now, let me, let me speak to the Christians in the room and some of you right now that have been nailed to your seat for the last 35 minutes and you have not brought yourself to look over at your girlfriend or boyfriend or your husband or your wife because of what's going on right now in your life sexually. And some of you've got some secret sins and some of you have just recently been caught in something and some of you have uh, images of your sexual past or present have been flashing through your mind. And what I want you to hear right now is that there is a very distinct difference between conviction and condemnation, between conviction of sin and accusation. Satan is an accuser. So what he'll do, if he can't get you to fall into the temptation, he'll just accuse you into it. And he'll say, you are your sexual sin. How could you be sitting here in church? How could you have raised your hands in worship a minute ago, knowing what you've been looking at, knowing what you've been doing with your body? And I want you to know that that is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is lovingly beckoning you to come back and to bring this area of, into the alignment with Jesus Christ as your Lord. So I want you to know this, is that Jesus' most compassionate looks and words were for people 
who were in sexual sin. And not one time did he ever scold, shame, or abandon somebody who had this going on in their life. For some of you, you've got a stain you can't get out. And it's not even because of something that you tangibly did. It's, it's something that somebody did to you a long time ago. Like you were just a kid. Like you didn't have, you didn't have any say. And you've been hiding that and it's, it's been eating you alive. And you felt guilty and dirty and ashamed. And there's a loving father who says, your body is not your own. I've sent my son to cover you by his blood and you can come home. You don't have to be hiding in that any longer. And so here's what I wanna ask you to do. I can't preach a message like this without inviting you to have somebody just care for your soul. And so all around the room, we're gonna have prayer counselors lining the room. And here's what I wanna ask you to do. I know that this is super like awkward to like actually walk up and have a conversation with a stranger about your sex life. So I just wanna make it real easy. Like you just walk up to this person and you just simply say, man, I need to be forgiven of. And just say it. Maybe it's just one word. I need to be forgiven of. And then they're not gonna ask any details. We're not gonna get your social security number. You know, it's, a, it's a, we're just, okay, man, let's pray for you. Like, man, me too. We've, we've all been there. We've struggled. Maybe you need to say, I need to be healed from sexual abuse. I need to be healed from this thing that's been done, this taken from me. Maybe here's the deal. I need to have courage to have that conversation, move out, break up, start a new relate, whatever it is, but it's gonna require courage. And let us come around you as a church family, not to be condemned or accused, but to be set free. Father, we come to you right now. And I know this isn't easy to hear. I know that this is convicting and it's challenging. And God, I pray that your spirit would meet us right in this room or right online, wherever we may be, and that you would speak the words of life into our souls. We need you. The secular script on human sexuality is failing us. And so God, may we turn to you and bring this area of alignment into the Lordship of Jesus Christ because you not only care about our eternal soul, you care about our physical bodies because we are an integrated person. So God, I pray that those who need prayer would have the courage to come. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.